When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 445th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most widely admired actresses in show business. Though she is only 57, she has already been in the business for some 45 years, having started as a child performer and matured over decades of ups and downs into a full-fledged star. Her credits include notable projects like the films Footloose, L.A. Story, Honeymoon in Vegas, Hocus Pocus, Ed Wood, The First Wives Club, Mars Attacks, The Family Stone, and Smart People, as well as the TV series Square Pegs and Divorce. But she will forever be most associated with the part of writer-turned-podcaster Carrie Bradshaw, who she played on six seasons of HBO's game-changing comedy series Sex and the City from 1998 through 2004, its two movie adaptations in 2008 and 2010, and now it's HBO Reboot and Just Like That, which recently wrapped its 10-episode first season and will be back for a second soon. Vogue, describing the original TV series, wrote, quote, For a generation of women, the show almost single-handedly defined in ways both poignant and comedic, distressing and dazzling, what it means to navigate the challenges and triumphs of friendship, love, and career through the interlocking stories of four best friends in turn-of-the-millennium New York City. Close quote. Her performance on the show brought her an Emmy Award, four Golden Globe Awards, and a SAG Award. And as one of its producers, she won another Emmy and two more Golden Globes. Now, nearly a quarter century after Sex and the City introduced us to Carrie and her friends, and just like that, is catching up with them as they deal with a very different New York and time in their own lives. But one thing remains the same as reflected by her recent inclusion on Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. People still love the actress who brings Carrie to life, Sarah Jessica Parker. Over the course of our conversation, Parker reflected on growing up as one of eight children in a family that could barely make ends meet, and how, amidst those circumstances, she discovered a passion for acting, how her unconventional beauty was not really acknowledged until Steve Martin cast her as a desirable woman in 1991's L.A. Story, and how that changed the trajectory of her career, why she was very reluctant to take on the part of Carrie in Sex and the City, a character whose experience of being single in New York was, incidentally, nothing like her own, what it has been like to revisit the character after many years and to address both the lack of diversity of the original show and the absence from the new one of one of the original core four, Kim Cattrall, for reasons which Parker addresses in depth for the first time, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Sarah Jessica, thank you so much for making the time to do the podcast, and uh, great to have you. We always begin on this podcast truly at the beginning. Could you share with our listeners, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, wow. What a nice and refreshing and interesting question. I was born, but not raised. I was born in a very small town in southeastern Ohio um, called Nelsonville, Uh, So Nelsonville, Ohio, in a hospital that I think no longer exists. Um, I lived in the Athens area. So that was the hospital that served Athens, um, where my parents were involved in the um, university there, um, Ohio University, lived there for a few years, then moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, the big city, um, and lived there until January 1st of 1977 moved to New York City on January 1st of 1977 and have lived in New York City since then. My mother yes. was um, my mother was a school teacher until 
I'm one of eight children. So uh, there there came a time where it was no longer possible for her to be a teacher, but she still, I think she still sort of conducted life inside the house as if she was a school teacher. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And um, my father, uh, my biological father was a poet and a writer. um, And ultimately he became a businessman. And my stepfather um, is a truck driver and is a teamster. Well, I, you know, in prepping for this, went back as far as I could to, you know, find different interviews and profiles and things from over the years. And one of the one of the pieces I came upon, you kind of described your childhood with, you know, seven siblings and yourself as as sort of Dickensian. Uh, It was I I know you guys, uh, you know, money was tight. And yet somehow you also were very exposed to the arts. So can you explain just set the scene of what it was like growing up in, in that household. Sure. I think Dickensian is probably, um, a rather, um, a more dramatic portrait. Um, (laughs) and it, it might've been a word. There's some, there's some controversy on, on, uh, who used the word to describe my childhood, but I think, (laughs) I think probably what I was trying to communicate is that, you know, there wasn't a lot of money and it was that simple, but you know, my parents, like every parent wants the most for their children. They want a rich and interesting life. My mother really wanted to raise children that were exposed to the arts, that she really wanted children that were curious, interested people. Um, And so while in the conventional sense, we didn't have a lot and that is accurate. And there were times that were pretty grim in terms of just I don't know, simple things, frankly, even paying your utility bills. The life was very rich in other ways. And like a lot of people, I think, who were raised in homes where, you know, income was tenuous and unreliable, there were, I, I, I wouldn't change it. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have had a different childhood. And all of us kind of recall, despite the times that seemed scary that we were aware of, scary in terms of, you know, will our parents be okay? They seem worried. You know how one learns to glean that stuff. And it was very, um, it was really a full life. Like we did everything. My parents were very industrious. You know, at the time when I was growing up in Cincinnati, the arts was so well-funded by state, local, and federal governments, you know, we had so much access to the theater, to the symphony, to the opera, to ballet. We, you know, took ballet classes. We were on scholarship, but we had, you know, we were allowed every experience that every other ballet student had with the Cincinnati Ballet Company. Um, we had a, we have a wonderful regional theater in, in Cincinnati called the Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. It's a great theater. We have, a, we had a great symphony and philharmonic. So there were all these kinds of ways that we were feeling lucky, frankly, privileged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, and the fact that you were exposed to all of these things, I guess, you know, it seems like from a very early age, you you were drawn to ballet, to theater, to, um, you know, those two, I think, in particular. So I guess I right. wonder, and it wasn't just you, it was all of your, uh, or many of your siblings. So can you, can you just sort of explain how that, it seems like, not coincidentally, uh, was related to or that how that was related, I guess, to that decision to move to New York in 1977. And um, I know it wasn't that long after that, that you're not only in a Broadway show, but starring in a Broadway show as as Annie on Broadway and, and doing, um, you know, some pretty high profile stuff for a young for a young kid. I guess I just wonder uh, for at what point did it shift from being something that you did for fun to something that you did for work maybe as well as fun? Well, I think first what happened was in um, Cincinnati, there was our local um, NBC affiliate, which was called WLW TV. And it was downtown um, in a big old, beautiful building. And I read in a supplement in our local Cincinnati paper, I think it it was the Cincinnati Post, not the Inquirer. I, I think they had a supplement for kids called the mini page. And there was an advertisement in it that they were auditioning um, 
children to play the little match girl in the, um, so NBC used to make what were their versions of after school specials. And they were on, I think a couple times a year and they were called young people specials. And they were made by this incredibly talented writer director named Tom Robertson and his exquisitely gifted cinematographer, a man named Elia Gopian. And they, you know, filmed and shot and very cinematically made these really beautiful half hour programs for, for young people. So I saw this ad in the paper and I asked my mother and we went downtown and there were 500 little girls lined up and, um, I got the part and, (laughs) and I think initially what I loved about it was that the idea of somebody saying to me, pretend, imagine. And that story, as you know, that Hans Christian Andersen story is as bleak as it can be and heartrending and beautiful. And I loved the agony of it, even at eight. I just thought it was wonderfully painful. And for whatever reason, I loved when somebody said action and I was given instruction and I understood what somebody hoped I could do. There was that. There was the fact that they paid me $500, which was just unheard of. It just seemed like a mountain of money. And my mother made sure that I was dropped off every day for ballet class. So I wrapped in time to get to ballet and they would give me $5 to get something to eat. And if $5 in 1973 or four went a long way and I was already thinking, how can I stretch this out and how can this turn into a savings for me? So there was a lot of components, components that made it really interesting. And so there, that, so that happened in Cincinnati and we were also involved in just, you know, as you've mentioned, just creative dramatics things on weekends. So that, that was a professional job. And I think at that point, I wondered in some sort of vague way, is this something I can be? Is this something I can do? And Once again, in a newspaper was an ad that um, Harold Pinter was directing a play on Broadway. It was an adaptation of The Turn of the Screw called The Innocence by William William Archibald. And um, we were going to New York um, to visit my father and his family. And so we got on our Volkswagen bus and we went to New York City and we auditioned. And ultimately, um, I got... First, we actually got the understudies, but then we were back in Cincinnati doing another young people special. By this time I was 11 and my brother and I were playing brother and sister in a, in a, in one of these specials. And it was called, um, it was called Nightmare, the Immigration of Joachim and Rachel. And it was a story of these two young people escaping the Warsaw ghetto and coming to America and meeting a fam, family members, distance fam, distant family members arriving at Ellis Island. And we were in the middle of actually looping and we were in a stairwell at WLW-TV5. And my mother came in because we were meant to be in a sewer. So they wanted an echoey sound. And my mother came in and said, the little girl that they've hired to to play the lead in The Innocence, it hasn't worked out and they want you to fly to London tomorrow to start rehearsals. (laughs) So I went with my, my father, my stepfather and, um, and the, you know, then ultimately my brother was the understudy and that was an extraordinary circumstance. And we played out of town. We played Philadelphia. We came into Boston, the Colonial Theater. Then we came into New York and Harold Pinter directed it and Claire Bloom started it. And she was a wonder for me, an absolute revelation. You know, this is what an actor, oh, oh. And um, it was a short-lived experience, unfortunately. (laughs) But once again, I went home to Cincinnati after the play closed and I simply couldn't shake New York. I, I, I couldn't shake New York. I couldn't get rid of this. It's very hard to describe. I think people that come to New York and touch on it and then dream of it. It's a very peculiar thing because some people have that feeling and then they come and it doesn't last. And some people come and you never leave. And I'm the latter. And I just think I just saw I just saw this kind of hard to describe promise and I wanted to be an actor and I wanted to live, you know, in Midtown and work in the theater. And, (laughs) and so for a variety of reasons, we moved to New York on that date in January. Um, And part of it was so that we could pursue this idea, but also as my stepfather had an idea to start a trucking business, which he did here that transported Broadway shows on the road 
And you said you, I think I'd seen something where you said that there was something about the structure of the theater and maybe particularly Broadway that maybe you gravitated towards because it just wasn't possible to really have that in a house with eight kids. <laughs> I think there was wonderful, like one of the things I forgot to mention about doing the little match girl was I was just by myself. I had this to myself. And I think any one of my siblings would say the same thing about anything that felt like their own. And so that certainly, I think structure and discipline kind of existed in the chaos of our home. But there is a kind of work ethic and discipline that is expected and sits hands and sits hand in glove or rests hand in glove in both ballet and the theater. There's a real seriousness to the work. And I liked that. I think, like I said, I'm I'm kind of obedient by nature, but I also <laughs> like I like structure that allows freedom at the same time. I think structure often is the very thing that, that leads to freedom. You know, if you understand, you can then kind of go crazy. You feel more safe. And so, yes, I definitely loved, I loved, I loved having something that was just mine. And I loved making an income that could help my family. That felt, that felt really good. But it was so nice to leave the house and go to the theater and have those three hours to myself, you know. And would you say that, can you remember, uh, was there a specific moment along the way that we've talked about? Maybe it was even what we're, what this all sort of led into with with that year that you played Annie, that w- where you really said, this is no longer something I've been sort of guided towards, but this is something that I'm choosing to to embrace as, as my path only because there was an interesting profile of you that I, I went back and found from 2000 in the New York times. And I guess they spoke with your mom. And Mm. one of the things she said was quote, I would like to say that I was absolutely not a stage mother, but on some level I was what the children did was pretty much under our control, but any of the kids that did not want to act didn't do it. Close quote. So I guess at any point, it sounds like you really um, could have stopped, but it, it, Somewhere along the line, I, I'm sure it was your your choice at, at a certain point. Yes, Do you remember definitely. when you, yeah. I think it was, so I did The Innocence in 76. And then mm-hmm. in 78, not a year after being in New York, um, having had other experiences in New York, which are consequential in some way, but I won't bore you with. I did audition for <laughs> Annie, which had just opened on Broadway. And um, I... I got the part of an orphan and the understudy to Annie. And I think at that point, because at that point, I also had to decide between ballet and the theater, which I couldn't pursue Mm. ballet, which requires a huge amount of time in the ballet room and the studio um, and class mostly. Um, And I think at that point, I really in my head thought, well, you know, I knew who Ruth Gordon was and I loved Ruth Gordon and she was, you know, in her prime, probably in her sixties or seventies at that point. And I thought, well, I want, I, I, and there were a million ballet dancers that I admired. I was with ABT at the time, but I knew that there was this limited time to be a performer as a ballet dancer. That's just, the, that's just simply the the way it works. And right. I could be an actor forever. And I love ballet, but I also, I loved being on stage and there seemed the possibility of a lifelong, like a place where I could be for life. And I couldn't imagine teaching. I didn't think I had those skills. And so I think it was really when I got Annie and I was really had to make the decision about quitting ballet that I thought, well, now you're making it. Now you're making a decision that is premature in some ways, but is is really about your future and a meaningful future. That's a vocation and a profession. And that's when it started to feel that I was, um, that I was going to make this, you know, this is where I would devote my time that I wouldn't go to college likely, you know, which was a big deal. Um, and so, and that's really pretty much, that was, I sort of never looked back or thought of anything else after that. And it's interesting because you've said that in your home as a kid, TV was not really, you know, an option to watch. Uh, and that even in some of your early interviews, they're asking you, what do you want to do? Well, 
theater or film, but certainly not television. Um, no, and it's I, interesting how <laughs> I feel terrible and, you know, about how, that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you you. You weren't wrong. Things have things have changed a lot since then in, in television, but partly because of you. But uh, I, I do, I guess, was the first screen opportunity that entered the picture for you. I don't know if it was the first, but I guess the first important one was Square Pegs, right? This this show on CBS, one year, you're a star, one of these two kind of, yes. <laughs> I don't know if nerdy is the right yeah, word. Yeah, but, it, is. Know, nerdy. it is nerdy. They were nerdy. That, I think they were actual, the definition. Yeah, and you know, there was even... <laughs> There was even big conversations about whether I was going to be allowed to do that because actually before that, when I was an orphan in Annie, my parents were out of town and I can't remember why, but I auditioned for a show, which I, gosh, I wish I could remember the name. Um, it was about a little girl and her father, me and Max. Do you remember a show called me and Max? Okay. It sounds familiar. Yeah. And I auditioned for that show and I got it while my parents were out of town and my <laughs> brother Pippin was in charge of all of us. And I was like, well, my mom, mommy's not going to let me do this television show, but my mom was out of town and <laughs> we sort of, we sort of kept having the conversations. I had an agent, a wonderful agent at this agency called the Anne Wright Agency, which was a wonderful small agency here in New York City. And we just kept moving along, you know, and not sending any red flags to anybody involved in the television show. And finally, I I gave my notice at Annie and I went to uh, I went to the company manager and, you know, there's a procedure, right? You give two weeks notice. And I said, well, I'm going to leave. I'm going to do a television pilot called Me and Max. And uh and Martin Sharnan said, oh, no, you're not. You're one day short <laughs> of a proper two-week notice. And um, and so I thought at the time, well, this actually, this actually keeps me from getting in trouble with my mom, you know? <laughs> and so I stayed and I, I became Annie after that, actually. Um, so uh... that remained, like there was this tension in my house. So when I got square pegs, it wasn't, it wasn't, my, my mom was not entirely convinced that I should do it. Like it wasn't simply a foregone conclusion that just getting this part meant that I was going to go to Los Angeles and be on television. And it was a huge, very complicated for my family. I had two very young siblings. What were they going to do? How was my mother going to be with me? Because we didn't have child labor laws in New York. We just went around mm -hmm. and did, we could do three shows at a time and two commercials during the day and a movie after you wrap, you know, like, <laughs> and so it was going to ask a lot of my family and it took convincing and it was a hardship, frankly, for my family. Um, mm -hmm. But I convinced my mother, and I think that was because that script was so freaking wonderful. I mean, it was undeniably such a special show. And I think Anne Beats was such a hugely singular, special voice that the, the words and the text kind of eclipsed my mother's reservations. Well, a quick, a quick aside is that I believe in this same time period, starting around 1977 and in, in the years immediately after that, it seems like you were on multiple occasions either competing with or in projects alongside a fellow youngster <laughs> by the name of Cynthia Nixon. How yes. is, I, I had no idea about this. What was like, what was that about? So the first time Cynthia and I worked, so we were always together on auditions. And I always say, and I think it's the truth, that she got most of the parts. Um, if it, <laughs> it was down to Cynthia and, and, and me and maybe one other person, Cynthia typically was cast rightfully. Um, we did a record together. I don't know if you're too young to remember, but they used to do records of books <laughs> and we did, I did a bunch of records and she did. And we were, we were sisters. And um, I played Laura Ingalls and she played Mary Ingalls in little house in the Prairie. And she actually just found a copy of the record, which is incredible. Um, oh my God. And then when I left Annie, we played sisters in a movie of the week called, I think it was originally called the lilac season. And then it was switched to my body, my child with Vanessa Redgrave as our mother mm -hmm. and Joe Campanella as our father, Jack Albertson as our grandfather. Mm -hmm. So we played siblings oh on, in this beautiful very complicated story actually about, um, about abortion. Uh, it was for mm -hmm. ABC. So we played sisters in that. And I can't remember if we did something else. Oh, we did tons of readings together. 
Yeah, I mean, I saw there was there was a time where you went out together. As you mentioned, there were probably many of these times, but one of them was the Philadelphia story. Then there was yep, yep. you originated, I guess, the Heidi Chronicles, and she. Oh, that's right. That's right. Succeeded you. Right? She took like, over when I left. Crazy. Yeah, she took over <laughs> Heidi when it moved to Broadway. I couldn't go, and she took over. Um, yes, that's right. She got the Philadelphia story at Lincoln Center. I didn't. Um, and then, and it's, it was so wonderful when, when, when I learned that she was going to do sex in the city, because we had this kind of friendship, but it wasn't something that we had time to work on and our lives were very different. And I will also say that among many virtues that Cynthia possesses, namely the ones that we are more familiar with, meaning her acting skills, which are mm -hmm. perfect and beautiful and wonderful to be playing plain opposite is she was a great student. You probably know this super accomplished. So she had a whole academic career that is equally as um, impressive as her acting career in many ways. I did not. So there were just so many things. <laughs> we were so different, but I, you know, I have such affection and I think it grew more so when we really started working together every day for all these past many years. And she is just sure. a hugely special person to me, you know, to Kristen, to every, to all of us who spend time with her. And so it's been a real, totally. it's been quite extraordinary to think that however old we are, we spent the past 40 some years together. It's quite something. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Well, there, there's an interesting period post square pegs pre LA story when you are you know, working quite a bit. There's Footloose. There's all kinds of stuff in that period. But it feel, I guess that there was a bit of a, a lack of imagination in the industry in terms of, <laughs> you know, right? Just conventional ideas yeah. of, of beauty are very conventional in that yes. period. And can you explain, though, because you have really just said that Steve Martin totally changed your career, your life, everything with the way, with casting you as this store clerk who uh, <laughs> measures his pants in a very memorable way and all of that. But I mean, very bouncy young lady uh, in yes. LA story, which is 1991. But literally, if I can just read back to you one thing where you're saying that quote, I wouldn't have gotten honeymoon in Vegas if I hadn't been, if it hadn't been for LA story. And therefore I feel a hundred percent confident that I would not have done sex in the city, close quote. So just, I guess we have to focus in on what was the climate going into LA story and how did it change for you as a result of his decision to cast you? So I guess I would, I recall the climate as you put it, which is kind of a good way of trying to picture a time and a place is that, like you said, I had a wonderful, I thought I had a wonderful career. You know, I was a true journeyman. I worked all the time. I was able to pay my bills and even help people, which is, you know, that's, you know, to me was, was success. You know, I had what I needed and sometimes what I wanted. And that seemed like a lot. And when I auditioned for LA story up to that point, I was most often the best friend of the pretty girl, the best friend of the lead and the lead typically, I mean, generally speaking, I'm painting in rather broad strokes, was very beautiful, pretty, what we understood pretty to mean. And I didn't argue with that. It didn't even occur to me to take issue with that. I might have said at the time that I understood and agreed because it was what we were all told. You know, those images are very as they are today. Um, so when I, when I got the sides for the audition for LA story, I, I understood it immediately. Like I, I, she couldn't be more different than me. Um, <laughs> but I understood it and I wasn't making fun of anybody. It wasn't, she wasn't somebody I knew or encountered because Steve Martin only takes an archetype and then wraps it around his magical digits and does all this other stuff but I knew what to do. The question is, would I be seen as somebody who could seduce Steve Martin, even if I understood it and could do it, would he allow me to be seen that way? And over the course of many auditions, and I think one or two screen tests, it at least became clear to me that it wasn't a folly, 
that they weren't messing around with me and that it had a possibility. And so when I got the part, I didn't feel I had to convince beyond the work that I already done. I just had to do my job now and do it well. And I was always nervous about that. And there was ways in which I prepared as best I could to be around him. I watched every movie of his again and again, just to see, especially because I thought she could be such a physical person that that Mm -hmm, would be a point of mm -hmm. operation. And that Steve Martin had spent so, so much of his career operating from physical life. So I worked really hard. And when I, when I, was on set with him, I simply tried to be what I understood her to be. And the more that I was able to do that, the more Mick Jackson encouraged that the balancing became a thing. I don't know that it was actually written into the script, but there was something so buoyant about her that at some point, I probably said this too often, when we were shooting scenes, Mick Jackson, who I loved, would ha- he had a megaphone because we were often in big, you know, open spaces, and he would say, you know, he'd call, he'd call, he'd say, um, and Sarah Jessica, bounce and action, and like that's how we would start <laughs> scenes. But he was dead serious. So yeah. Right. So then, when Steve Martin, when I could be attractive in the eyes of Steve Martin, all of a sudden it became okay. Or, well, maybe we can, maybe Andy Bergman, maybe he saw that the same way. I can't say because I would never dare have asked him that question, but I know but this that- just so people are, are following this. He directed then a year later, Honeymoon in Vegas, where it's you with Nicolas Cage and James Caan. Uh, and it was this run of, I mean, then you're with Johnny Depp and Ed Wood in 94. It just, it does seem like it, it was a game changer in a way, right? It was, it was a gateway to- I think like so we could probably talk about a million examples of somebody saying that something is now then okay, now okay. And we all accept it as um, a standard. And so it's, that's often the way. And, and there, we all should take issue with that because as we've learned in the recent past, that seems so silly. It limits, we miss out on great performers and great artists and lots of things that are tend to be more visual connected visually to us. So it was a huge stroke of luck for me that Steve Martin just saw that in me and therefore other people could. And I do think that I would not have, Darren wouldn't have asked me to do sex in the city if I hadn't sort of had this, as you said, this sort of string of those kinds of characters that have relationships with men that have to do with sexuality in some way. Mm-hmm. And not that those were the only things you were doing in that period, because there's also Hocus Pocus and First Wives Club and Mars Attacks and all kinds of stuff. But basically leading up to Sex in the City for listeners, I mean, it started in 94 as this New York Observer column. Uh, becomes a book in 96. And then you guys are, I believe, shooting in 97. So just, it seems like it it must have come together fairly quickly. Uh, Do you remember your first awareness of it at all? And then just how, uh, I I think you've said that the other three were, even though Darren apparently wrote Carrie with you in mind, the other three women were apparently on board by the time he got around to sharing that information with you. Right. I think so. And I've, I've got to, I should by this point have that history more clear. <laughs> I, I think they were, I remember, well, I remember the column. I remember when the column turned into a book because for some unknown reason, the book was sent to me by the publisher. I didn't ask for it. And those weren't the days where people sent books. I mean, we're much more accustomed now. Mm-hmm. If we're lucky to get books from publishers. Um, mm-hmm. But I knew of her column. Um, I knew of The Observer. And I actually, re- I actually read it sometimes. I would buy The Observer, you know, when I jumped on the subway. And, you know, it was unusual, that paper too, because, you know, it was pink, um, which made it stand <laughs> out on the newsstand. But I definitely knew Candace Bushnell. And I knew, you know, I remember some of her columns very vividly. So then I got the book and I was like, oh, this is interesting how smart they've compiled this into a book and created. So when Darren came to me, I was familiar. Um, I didn't understand how he was going to 
how he would interpret it for television. But I, when I, I met him, we met at a place called um, Eat up on the Upper East Side, and which to me was fancy. It's got really good egg salad <laughs> and it's very expensive. And I was very happy to meet him, but I couldn't understand why he could, I, I couldn't understand why he saw me in the part, to be honest, because I just didn't, I don't know. I, I didn't, despite all the things that we've just mentioned, I still mm -hmm. didn't understand why my voice was in his head. Um, and I had some questions, you know, I didn't want to do nudity um, and wasn't sure that I also wanted to be on a television series because I thought I had it all. I thought like I do a movie and then I go do a play and then I dip into the, another movie and then I travel to Yugoslavia or whatever. And I felt nervous about being, um, kind of confined to a television schedule. Um, but I gave the script to my brother, my oldest brother, Pippin, and I gave the script to Matthew and they both read it and said, we're, we're forcing you, you have to do this. <laughs> I mean, I knew I could tell it was good, but the things that were of concern to me, they said, don't even think about it. It's a pilot. It might not even get picked up. So what do you care? You can cross that bridge. But both of them were quite adamant that this was special. Um, and I'm really grateful, obviously. But I will say, even when it went to series, I tried to get out of it. Really? I, yeah, <laughs> because I had another panic attack about being on a television series for seven years. And I was like thinking, once again, foolishly and short-sighted, but I didn't know HBO. I didn't know HBO operated so differently. The rules were so different. The seasons were different. They were not answering to advertising dollars. They didn't have upfronts. You didn't have to shoot in September and, you know, be on the air, be on the air in September. And these conventional television schedules were not applicable. So everything that I was worried about, they kept just batting it away. They were like, just do a season. If you don't like it, we'll stop. <laughs> I was well, like, but okay. I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, another thing to bring in here though, because I know, and I'm sure it's frustrating to you that there are a lot of people who assume now that you and Carrie Bradshaw are <laughs> synonymous and must yeah. have the same, one in the same, right? But apparently- I mean, let's just know at the time, the entire time that you have been associated with that character, you've been married, right? Correct. Um, Correct. You, you, uh, it, it, the, you had never done and to this day have never done nudity, as we just sort of referred to. Um, and you have said that the idea of being in a group of friends and speaking kind of frankly about your sexual adventures or whatever is the most foreign concept to you that is imaginable, right? So it's not, it's, it's <laughs> to this day. So like, I mean, it's, it's not, it was not an obvious fit. No, it wasn't. And, and there were things about it that really, there were other things too, that weren't as personal. The idea of, I, I'm not, I'm not going to flatter myself that you watch the show, but early on there was this conceit did, of, talk, of talking to the camera, you know, yeah. um, there were people had names and titles and I, I couldn't bear talking to the camera. I, I, that was really hard. The choice of language, the kind of conversations we were having, like it was really, I had to be an actor. I literally had to summon somebody else, not judge it. I was thoughtful about the language and Darren and I talked about language a huge amount for the first season. Cause I said, you know, she's a writer and I want to be really thoughtful just because we're on HBO and we can sling around the F word and anything else. Let's be really thoughtful for Carrie, who is for all intents and purposes, she is making the story up. We don't know if the other women are really even real at this point. This might be, <laughs> these might be fictional characters that she's fleshed out to create this life every week and share with the public. So a lot of it felt really, I mean, even some, the outfits, but I wanted to do all of it. I felt it was all correct. It felt right. I mean, the language stuff we were careful about so that we just didn't look lazy or like we were exploiting our boundaries in some way. But it, it was it was wonderfully different and it remains so. And I think, obviously, I understand why the lines get so blurred between the people that play a part and their own <laughs> lives, because especially on television, it's a far more intimate affair with audiences. And especially on a show like this, where we're kind of we're the emotional connection 
is everything to, to me and the audience. Like it doesn't exist without them. And, and that can mean that they respond very poorly to choices we make and, and storylines. And, you know, even some of the more superficial stuff, the outfits or the hair, the makeup, I love that they, people feel strongly one way or the other. So I care a lot about getting it right and feeling as if I have kind of exploited everything that in this case, Michael Patrick has given, if that makes sense. But it is to this day, a very different person than myself. And, and not only that you were married from the, for the entire time you've been associated with the character, but you've said also that when you were single, it's not like this was the, the sort of lifestyle you were, it's not, you, you couldn't call upon any experiences in your own background to, to know how to play this character, right? Correct. I, there was, my single life was very, um, it was, it just wasn't as colorful. And I think you know, what has allowed for the initially Candace to create those columns was that she was so much, from what I understand, she just was braver about being in the world. She was much more comfortable meeting people and, and having those dating experiences. And I just, I was very slow to that kind of life anyway, because I was working so much. And by the time I was 18 and kind of ready to date, it was like I I was starting very behind. Everybody else had like left the starting line and I was catching up. So it always felt that I was, I had been dropped from a kind of from a different planet, frankly. And I think that that's probably something you would hear a lot from kids who worked as actors and into their young adulthood when they were sort of given the freedom, they, they felt ill-equipped initially to be among their own age group. And part of it was because we're also very mature in lots of ways. We're, we're people who have been earning our money. You know, I was, when I wasn't earning money, I was going to, you know, the unemployment office and, you know, I was like living in many ways, a very adult life. So there was sophistication and then there was absolute naivete and lack of sophistication socially. So I just didn't date wildly. Um, and I didn't really know how to. I mean, I certainly found my way around enough. It's not like I, <laughs> I, you know, met Matthew and he was the first man I ever dated, but it wasn't right. nearly as colorful. It's certainly nothing to write about. <laughs> well, so uh, I guess if, I wonder if it's possible to sort of step outside of yourself for a moment. I mean, I guess that's what you, you do all the time as an actress. But in this in this instance, what I mean is to try to diagnose why did this thing click so much when it did to the extent that here we are almost 25 years after you guys first went on the air or went on HBO and it's people are still super invested in the characters in the story. I I guess before you answer though, I wonder if I can just set the scene somewhat because I found that it's, it seems like it maybe can't be coincidental that season one, episode one debuts on June 6th, 1998, right in the middle of the Clinton Lewinsky stuff where I don't think people were talking that much about blowjobs and stuff, you know, prior to that, but suddenly it's everywhere. Um, you know, this is pre nine 11 New York, uh, which is obviously a whole different place in a lot of ways. And, and even in terms of shooting television, I think it was pretty much just law and order when you guys started filming in New York. So I guess just why do you think there's the fashion, there's the place, there's these women. And and I guess maybe that's really what it boils down to is that other than the Golden Girls, when else had we really seen a show centered on women? But in your your much more expert opinion, why do you think that it clicked? And what was your first indication that it that it really was clicking? I feel like I'm not an expert on this because I try to like not I try I always hope that I can leave these questions to others who are curious about its legacy. But I guess when I'm forced to answer the question, which you're not the first, I don't I don't mean to make you feel bad. (laughs) But um, I think I I think the thing because we can talk about the fashion and we can talk about its ribald conversations and the language and the kind of candor and intimacy, all of that was certainly brand new and fashion as part of the story was definitely 
brand new. And we can talk about ways in which it was used in the past. Certainly Mary Tyler Moore was hugely flash fashionable, other great women on television. But I think it was this idea of somebody looking as Richard Plepler used to say, someone looking for home. What is home? What is love? How, how am I going to find my way to that? And what does it mean? And I think the beautiful work by Patricia Field, I mean, all of that stuff that was like fun and titillating and interesting. It always comes down to story, 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 story. And Darren has a track record of understanding how to make an immediate connection with an audience. He did it before us and he's continued to do it after us. And then he turned it over to Michael Patrick King, who is the per perfectly suited to get the baton because what Michael loves to do is he likes to start deconstructing, ripping, ripping away, ripping, ripping away. So everybody, you know, Samantha, Miranda, Charlotte were on the surface, right? They were archetypes. And then Michael started revealing, revealing, revealing in very clever, smart ways. And certainly did that with Carrie. And he just kept giving the audience more. He just kept giving Carrie more. And Carrie's inability to get it right, love, contentment, satisfaction, romance. And it kept kind of being redefined by herself as she was fumbling through all of that. She kept redefining it and kept wondering if she was enough. Could, could New York be enough? You know, what could you be without a man and just simply have New York as your companion and find your way? So I think it was honestly, I think it's the storytelling because you can only hang your hat on an outfit for so long. And I don't mean to diminish that because those things were super important. But if the, if the stories didn't hold up, then after a while, it just, you can't, you can't rely just on extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary wardrobe department. They can't do all the yeah, work. Right. It's not fair to them. But isn't it also interesting though, that and I, obviously there have been many women writers in the writer's room, but isn't it, uh, isn't it interesting? Not, I'm not saying this with any, you know, implication, but just that I find it interesting, curious that the head person, I guess, in, in all the various incarnations has generally been a, a man, right? Yeah. It was Darren and then it was Michael Patrick and it remains Michael Patrick. And yeah, I think that is a curiosity. I want to say again, you know, you did bring up, you know, the kind of frank conversations, those, that kind of intimacy yeah. that those female friends were sharing, that was a huge part of what people responded to because, mm -hmm. I mean, the biggest thing that we started hearing from everybody immediately was, that's my, that's me. Those are my friends. That's how I count on my friends. Those are the people I choose. That's how I share the details of my life. That's how I get counsel. That's how I laugh. That's how I cry. That's who I reach for. And I think when we understood it to be having any kind of connection, because we were already filming, I think, our second season when the first season went on the air. So we were, mm -hmm. you know, was I remember a man, I was in an airport at the baggage carousel and a man walked by me and didn't even want to stop. He was ashamed. He said in his breath, my wife and I watch Sexo City. And I thought, oh, this is hard for him. Like he can't be seen. But I kept getting stopped by people. And when men would stop me, I thought, oh, this is in your home in a way that's, it's having some impact on you, you know? I think just being stopped on the streets of New York in ways that were different than before. When mm -hmm. somebody was saying, that's me, that's, that's, Mm, that's how I live or that's the way I want to live or those are the friendships that I want and you're giving me a place to be with other women not me but the show you know sure well after the six seasons of the original run you you guys uh stopped um and there I, I wonder what that moment felt like for you because I, I feel I would imagine that on the one hand it's an amazing accomplishment. It must be a great feeling to know that you've created a character that so many people know about, care about, feel invested in. On the other hand, I, it's not, it wouldn't be the first time that somebody's felt a little, you know, 
Adrift. Trapped in a way. Yeah. Oh. By, well, even just like that, oh, yeah. that it, it might limit other people's way ability to see you as other people. Again, we were talking about how fans may sometimes think that you're Carrie. I'm sure that there are people in the business who did as well. And I just wonder how yeah. much that shaped the decisions because looking at it, I mean, you certainly – um, you did the Family Stone. There's a Golden Globe nomination. You went back to the theater, but uh, it seems like when you did go back to the the screen for series TV with Divorce, which is 12 years after Sex and the City went off the off HBO, it essentially, in a lot of ways, was like the the anti character. You know, it was like <laughs> yeah. the, the furthest in the direction yeah. you could go another way, yeah. Um, yeah, while still being in New York State. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's true. Is that a coincidence or is that? Yeah. Um, it's funny. I don't, I never felt a kind of like hostility about a connection being made because I just, I get, I, I get to do so much in that part. Like I get as an actor, it's, it's, it's a challenge still. It's like to sort it out, figure it out, try to do it well. And because of the kind of connection it made with an audience, I would be a fool if I didn't think that people have impressed her on me in some way and, and then in the industry as well. But I have also felt that then it's incumbent upon me to not trade on that. So meaning if a part comes my way that feels familiar, like it's a version of that, I'm not, I don't want to do that. I only want to play Carrie in one place at one time in one home. And that's HBO right. and with this group and with, you know, Michael Patrick and his writers. And um, so I think as scary as that idea is, and it's real, that you will only be seen this way and that all other opportunities will just sort of fade and they won't exist. It's my job to be brave and wait for the opportunities that feel continue to feel like a challenge, feel interesting, feel inspiring. Um, and I'm lucky that I can do that. You know, I'm lucky that I get to have the freedom of choice. It's huge. I mean, it's, I can't even express, I know what I wish for every woman, honestly, in every field. And that's a big freedom. Um, but I have felt also that I've had other opportunities and I try to make those choices based on my family now and, and what's interesting and time away and where will it be and who am I working with? And I think I, I have, I'm pretty circumspect and philosophical about, about, you know, the hardship in quotes of being identified with a character. Like I just can't look at it as anything other than, an enormous privilege personally and professionally. And if I begin to see it another way, I think that will be a, a pretty devastating time. And you know, that what will have happened that makes me feel differently. I wouldn't want to imagine. Well, and it's just, it's, it must in some ways though, feel like, I think whatever it is, Godfather three, just when I thought I was out, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, they pulled me back in because yeah. there was, of course, the 2008 and 2010 movies. And then here we are uh, as of 2021 with and just like that, which, of course, uh, that's been the longest gap between the second movie and that. So here we are finding these characters all these years later and catching up with what's changed in the world and what's going on with them and their social circles and all of that. And I, I guess I wonder for you, because every, there are people who I'm sure every day have been asking you to, you know, please come back. We miss you, whatever, as, <laughs> as Carrie, what for you was the reason at this particular time to agree to do that? And when you agree to do that, is it like just slipping on a, a old pair of shoes that you just go right back into playing her or is there an adjustment period? Um, so it all started in April of 2020. I called Michael Patrick. Um, we had been doing a play. We were about to open on Broadway, my husband and I. Um, we were yes. about to do our first performance when the governor shut down um, Broadway and Times Square. So I, like millions of Americans, millions and millions and millions of Americans were, you know, spending a lot of time at home and um, the time spent not helping my children figure out Zoom and classroom and <laughs> projects and homework and fixing the dishwasher. Um, I 
you know, was thinking about the show. I think I was listening to a podcast and I called Michael Patrick and I said, you know, I have this crazy thought and we're both home and this is time we're not going to get back. And, you know, we've, you and I have never talked about the process of making the show and it's sort of like the all access laminate, you know, we've never really shared those details. And would that be something that you're curious about doing as a podcast? And he said, yeah, let me think about it. And he said, yes. And then he wanted to think about how we could do it and what could be interesting. And so he called back and we talked about that and we started having these larger conversations with our agents. And then it got into these very formal conversation with, you know, podcast distributors, et cetera. And it got pretty serious. And at the same time, Michael said, should we be actually thinking about the show? And I said, yes. Now, should we be doing this simultaneously? And he and I had been talking back and forth about the show, a show, the show, a show. And all of a sudden, kind of at the same time, we both felt the time was right for the first time in forever, that it all of a sudden felt like what would feel best coming out of this very bleak chapter was to be home again, that what people were watching on television was the past. You know, our family was were watching all old television shows, Columbo and Mary Tyler Moore, all of Bob Newhart, you know, like we were all going back, 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 among other things we were watching. But there was this feeling of kind of comfort and the idea of it, though scary, and we didn't know how we were going to do it, it felt right. And so then we got on the phone with our friends at HBO and that was it. I mean, it was pretty quick. It was pretty. And I think to answer the other part of your question was, um, how does it feel? You know, it, it wasn't easy. It wasn't familiar. It was more so like on the surface, it is familiar, It, but it's also not. And it was very hard, very scary. I could not figure it out. And I was not convinced I had but like I said, on the surface to the naked eye, it would appear she was all there, I suppose. But I, it, it's like, um, it's like if you walk back into a school building and you're like, yeah, that was, you know, my French class and yeah, that, and I walked it in that, oh my God, my schedule was well, but you would know it, but the, it would take time to have it be really in your bones in some way or, mm -hmm. or, or naturally there that you can know what you're going to say, you know, uh, it took time and, uh, and I, sure. I'm always really hard on myself. So I didn't make it pleasant for myself in the beginning. Well, last two minutes here, I wonder if I can just note, uh, first of all, the, the, there are, I guess, two kind of obvious major differences on the, uh, immediately from, uh, the original series to this one, you guys directly have addressed what, you know, I know you've all spoken about was kind of the, in hindsight, the the Achilles heel of maybe the original, which was the the lack of diversity, which was true yes. of so many shows in the, I mean, Seinfeld, Friends, it goes on and on. Of that era, I guess we all had a, uh, many had a blind spot. And yes. so I guess that's one, one thing that you have certainly addressed. And then the other major change, of course, is that it's three of the four of you from the original who are back and, you know, and, and I guess I just wonder, since that, of course, prompts questions about, uh, you know, why is that? Any clarification you can give about that? Because I know people throw out all kinds of speculation, whatever, but I'd rather get it right from from you about why that is. Sure. Well, the, um, yeah, it's been really special to have so many extraordinary actors join and has been, I mean, it's just enriched the stories. It's enriched our onset experiences, frankly, the offset experiences. So that's just been very joyful. And I think the, you know, I think it's, it's pretty, it's pretty simple. I'll, I'll be as clear as I can. I have this, it's very hard to talk about the situation um, with Kim because I've been so careful about not ever wanting to say anything that is unpleasant because it's not the way I like to conduct conversations that are as complicated as this. I, I you know, so I, I will kind of run through, I think the best way to do it is, and honestly, is to just kind of run through how it happened is that, you know, the studio wouldn't, the studio, when we were going to do the third movie, um, there were things that she requested that they were not able to 
to do. They didn't feel comfortable meeting where she wanted to meet. And so we didn't do the movie because we didn't want to do it without Kim and the studio wasn't going to do it. So it fell apart. Um, it wasn't that she said no to the movie. It's that the studio said no to the movie, which, you know, happens. And every actor has a right to ask for things, to have a, you know, a contract that feels good to them. I never would have disputed that because frankly, that's not my business. You know, were we disappointed? Sure. But it happens. And then there were just a lot of public conversations about how she felt about the show. And once again, I, it's not for me to say that you're wrong. You know, it was for you a great thing. I, I don't know. Those, those, that hasn't been our experience. And I've spent a lot of years working really hard to always be decent to everybody on the set, to take care of people, to, to be responsible to and for people, both my employers and the people that I feel I'm responsible for as a producer of the show. And there just isn't anyone else who's ever talked about me this way. So it's very painful because she's a huge contributor to the success. I think, you know, her portrayal of that role was wonderful and it, it filled out everything, right? There were four points on the picture and they were all important, but we did not ask her to be part of this because she made it clear that that wasn't something she wanted to pursue and it no longer felt comfortable for us. And so it didn't mm -hmm. occur to us, but that's not slamming her. It's just learning. No. You got to listen to yeah. somebody. And if they're publicly talking about something and it's not, it doesn't suggest it's someplace they want to be or a person they want to play or uh, an environment in which they want to be. We have to get to, you get to an age where you're like, well, we have, we hear that. And, and, you know, it's, it's, we were enormously reliant upon Michael addressing it and figuring out how to talk about the absence of Samantha, because we have such affection for Samantha and we wouldn't have affection for Samantha I mean, it's all tied up in, in Kim. So it goes, it's, you can make the natural inference that it's there because of Kim's work. Um, but we, we felt comfortable moving on without her and without that part, because we knew what Michael wanted to do. And we thought he handled it beautifully and that she was there. She was present. And that was kind of yeah. nice for all of us. And I think the audience. So I hope I've discussed that in a way that makes sense. It's so painful for people to keep talking about this cat fight, a fight, a fight, a fight. I've never had, I've never uttered fighting words in my life about anybody that I've worked with ever. There is not a fight going on. There has been no public dispute or spat or conversations or allegations made by me or anybody on my behalf. I wouldn't do it. That is not the way I would have it. So I just wish that they would stop calling this a cat fight or an argument yeah. or because it doesn't reflect actually no there has been one person takes, talking takes two to tango yeah yes yeah. and i and i'm not going to tell her not to or anybody but so that's been kind yeah. of painful for me also but i mean not relative to other people other people's pain in their life i'm not suggesting that mine is no well i'm i'm sorry that that's the that's what's going on but i guess that's to okay. to leave us on a uh, on a happy uh, you know note i wonder you know as as you guys the three of the four of you continue in this uh, again almost 25 year journey when you are out you live in new york i know when you're yes. out and about in new york and you know, are walking around and you see a Sex in the City tour bus or you see uh, young women walking around in, in groups or uh, the way that people dress. I mean, do you kind of have to pinch yourself and realize that this is largely the result of something that you were a part of? I think that I'm sure I, I know other people remark on it, even when you watch TV, the fact that there's all these other shows, which I would not put in the in the same league, but whether it's girlfriends or girls or on and on and on, where there's a there's a model both in the world and on TV that seems to have been established by you guys. And not many people or shows can can say something like that. I think it's it's really special that we got to be part of something that made a connection. You know, we do we see in our lives together when we're shooting, we talk about it. You see, you know, a group of women sitting together, having drinks, planning things. You People share with me a lot, you know, 
planning time with their female friends. Um, and by the way, it's grown so that it's not just female friends that make this connection and connect it with the show. It's, you know, it's people that are now, you know, and that share that with us. So we recognize that. Um, and it's very special to, it's very special to be part of something that people have connected to. And there's been lots more television about women and women, women's friendships and women needing each other and women needing friendships that are not just among women. Um, and I'm thrilled that we were in a contemporary way, you know, kind of one of those first, you know, a first group that, that was saying there, there is commercial viability here, but there's also creative viability. And there's maybe the most important part, there's a human connection that, that exists. And, and um, it was HBO who didn't care that there was no point of reference. They did not care. And that was the way they functioned. They were like, we don't care that there's nothing we can point to. You go do this. We think, we think there's value in this. And so, you know, to see it have kind of the way it's affected people um, has been very, frankly, touching, really, truly. And we all recognize and know it. It's very cool to uh, get to talk to you about it. And Likewise, I thank you so much for you. taking the time. Yeah, very special. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's lovely having time with you. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.